In my early years, I had ideas about what a life of faith looked like. It was pretty and forward and upward. And now I'm older and I can say yes and no. I look at my faith quite differently now. I would say I have a more realistic picture. My hope is actually a little more grounded. Today, I'm going to repost an episode I did on hope and faith. And we're going to look into the Bible and see how truthful God is about how those things actually look in the life of women. But before I dig in, I want to let you know about a couple things I'm doing. First of all, we're going to be hosting an in-person Bible study in Austin, Capel, and Dallas starting mid-September. So if you're in any of those areas, any of those locations, you might want to join us for our three-week study on the Exodus story. Um, and also, if you've ever loved studying the Bible, if you're one of those people that like on your free time, you read commentaries or historical background of the Bible or any of those geeky kind of things, I want you to know you're not the norm. Most women are not saying, hey, can I spend my extra time doing that? So if you do that, there's a pretty good chance you may have the gift of teaching. And so I want to offer to you an online course called She Can Teach, where you can actually gain the skills in how to study the Bible really well and how to put together a biblical message that is effective and transformative to those who hear. Now, maybe you already are teaching the Bible, but you've never had any formal training. This is also for you. So we're going to be offering an online She Can Teach course starting September 1st through October 6th. And you can register for either the Bible study or the She Can Teach course by going to um, our website, themarcellaproject.com. Or you can just email me if you have any questions, have further things you want to talk about at Jackie at themarcellaproject.com. Okay, so we're going to talk about hope and faith and how we learn the real picture from real women in the Bible. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. We're talking about hope. Biblical hope. I probably need to start by telling you what it isn't and then what it is. Biblical hope isn't about our circumstance, nor is it about having some Pollyanna optimistic attitude. In the scriptures, we see that hope is about expectantly waiting and many times waiting a really long time. A waiting where there is tension until the release. A waiting for God to restore all of creation to its fullest flourishing. And this thing about hope is it's got both, it's both clear-eyed, meaning, you know, like you see it for what it is. We're not going to try to pretend it isn't wonder, that it's wonderful. It's not. It sucks. We're going to be clear-eyed about what's really happening. 
but also to have like what's called a social imagination, a collective imagination where we can see that there, in the future, something is better than the present. And we've been given that, if you will, social imagination, right? This vision that there is something better in the future. You can see it in Genesis 1 and 2, and again in Revelation 21. And I would argue that we also get glimpses of it while we live in the here and now. And today I want to talk about hope, how Jesus gives hope to women. And we're going to do that by looking at two women in the scripture. And I'm sure that these are stories that are very familiar to you. But I want us to just slow down a little bit and really consider what does Jesus have to say to us today about hope through their story. It's been about 1,500 years since the Old Testament gospel story, you know, the story of the Exodus, when God set his people free from slavery. But it's been 15 years from that story, and once again, the Jews find themselves underneath oppressive empire, right? The Romans. And it's during that time of suffering and pain that there's also an announcement, an announcement through a young girl, a nobody from nowhere. And this nobody from nowhere, she actually is the first to speak the gospel in Luke's story. Mary, this nobody from nowhere. She proclaims the Magnificat, right, in Luke 1. And basically when she does that, she's declaring the gospel story, our gospel story in the New Testament, that God's king is coming bringing about God's kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven. And basically, Caesar, you're off the throne. Jesus is on it. How things are, not how they're going to be. Mary belts this out. This is a fighter song. This is a start a revolution kind of song. I mean, if Caesar heard him, he'd kill her. In fact, in 1980, Guatemala restricted the public reading of the Magnificat for fear that it would inspire the oppressed to rise up against the government. These are fighter words. Mary has hope. And her hope is not built on some fantasy or some optimistic attitude. It's built on the past, reality, the Exodus story, right, where God sets his people free. It's built on the past and her present reality. Mary's pregnant with Jesus, and she's pregnant with God-sized possibilities. A new reality is on the horizon. This is what she's telling us. This is actually what we proclaim every week when we take the Eucharist, right? But here's what I want to know. Well, actually, I want us to think about. Do you think she saw that the fullness of that reality in her lifetime? No, I don't think so. And was life easy for her as she waited for this hope to, be, to unfold? No, I don't think so. I mean, think about it. She got pregnant out of wedlock, which could have gotten her stoned. And then when she's really, really pregnant, she gets on a donkey and goes for a long ride. I've been pregnant. That had to have hurt. And then she has to leave town and go and live as a refugee. Remember that? Her and her husband and Jesus, when Jesus is two, they leave. And I've always thought about that story. Like, I remember when I had toddlers, it was really hard to be home all day by myself, so I'd get together with other women who had toddlers. 
and we would chit chat a little bit and eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I became friends with these women and I cared about their children. And I, and I imagine the same was true with Mary, right? She's there and she's friends with Sarah. They have peanut butter and jelly together. She likes their kids. And now she's on a donkey leaving. And she knows, she knows that Sarah's son is going to be killed because somebody wanted to kill her son. How did she feel leaving, knowing that? That's a burden. In John chapter 7, we read where um, Jesus' brothers are teasing him, like, if you're really, you know, God's king, then why don't you do ba-ba-ba? And basically, they're, they're like, they don't believe he is who he says he is. And so I wondered as a mom, what does it feel like to have tension between your siblings? And then there's that time where she and, and the others come to the house, and Jesus says, well, who's my mother? <laughs> I'd like to slap him upside the head, right? Like, who's my mother? He denies her. There's other scriptures that tell us that people thought he was crazy. What was it like as a mom to have people in your community think your son's nuts? And then let's not forget, he's the oldest child. And in that culture, he's her social security, right? When she can no longer provide or be provided for, he's responsible for her. And what job does he have? Oh, wait, none that's making any money. We haven't even gotten to his hanging on the cross. I find it interesting in scripture that Mary is called blessed. It says she's blessed because she believed. There's that word faith, trust, trust, letting go of. Letting go of the way she thought it was going to look. She expectantly waited for the Lord to do what he said he'd do. Faith and hope, they're, they're interwoven, aren't they? She didn't see the full reality of what she said in the Magnificat to come to be. She didn't. But she did see glimpses. Yes, she did. Her son walked on water, healed the blind, raised Lazarus from the dead. Glimpses, right? Glimpses of the new heaven and new earth, what it's going to be like. Eternity being seen in the here and now. I haven't, always, haven't seen Jesus raise anybody from the dead, but I have experienced him raising life from dead things, and I suspect you have too. You know, about, um, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now, my, my dad, he just went nuts, and his actions ruptured all five of us kids and my mom. And at one point, he started having visions of trying to kill my sister on her wedding day. And she had to hire a bodyguard, bodyguard for her wedding. I mean, when I say he went nuts, I'm not kidding. And needless to say, I mean, my sister's relationship with my dad was totally severed for years and years and years. I get it. And about five years ago, she called me and she said, I saw dad at the grocery store. And I said, hello. And there it was. I said, hello, a glimpse of hope. Now, I'm not stupid. My dad is old and has the onset of dementia, so there's not enough time for him to repair all that's been ruptured on this side. But scripture tells me of a promise, Colossians 1.20. It says that Jesus will reconcile all things, 
And I take that to mean all things, including what isn't reconciled on this side. And so when I start to doubt, when things look so impossible on this side, I just hear the echo of my sister's voice. I said hello. Okay, wait a minute. I've got to share one more story. It's the woman at the well. I know. I think you think you know you've heard it all. I'm telling you, there's some things in here. I mean, there is a special kiss on the cheek from God to us women specifically in this passage. It's found in John chapter 4. If there is ever any woman, any person actually, that's at the very back of the line, it's the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan, and we know Jews hate Samaritans. She's a woman in a culture where women are considered less than actually, mostly property. She's coming to the well midday, which speaks to shame. She's feeling some shame. And in verse 9, Jesus asked her for a drink of water, and she's shocked. It says in verse 9, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? He's a man. He's a Jew. He's a rabbi. Rabbis don't engage women in theological dialogue. In fact, at that time, there was this um, group of rabbis called the Bleeding and Bruised Rabbis because when they walked along the road and came across a woman, they would cover their eyes and, well, (laughs) run into things. And Jesus says to her in verse 10, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now, in Israel, living water is water that has a continuous flow. It's not stagnant. It's fresh spring water. It's essential for life, especially those who live in a desert. Later in John chapter 7, we read that when Jesus spoke of the living water, he was actually referencing the Holy Spirit who would refresh, who's essential for breathing life into dead things, restoring, redeeming, making new. She's thinking literal water. He's talking about a transforming power for her, for women, for women particularly like her. He tells her she'll thirst no more. He's not talking about literal water. She wants that. (laughs) Me too. Don't you? He asks her, go get your husband. And she says, I can't. I don't have one. You're right, you have five, and the one you're living with isn't your husband. For centuries, theologians and pastors have interpreted that passage to mean that Jesus is pointing to her sin. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I don't think that's what's happening in this passage. In that culture, most of the time, women were not allowed to divorce a man. Only a man could divorce a woman. And so if you think about it from that perspective, she has been left, rejected, thrown away, left to a life of poverty or prostitution. Those are her choices. Five times. I think Jesus is tapping into the rupture that's been done to her. I also think that she's settled She's resigned herself that this is as good as it gets. Living with a man may be shameful, but at least I can eat. She says to him, you're a prophet. And then this thing happens. They engage in a theological dialogue. Remember what I said about rabbis? Women were not allowed to study underneath a rabbi. 
she takes him to task. Worship. Yeah, she says, do I have to worship down in Jerusalem at the temple or can I worship right here at this mountain? Basically, she's asking, which church do I have to go to to be accepted? Or which faith tradition do I have to follow? Baptist or Presbyterian, Catholics? Which one am I supposed to identify with to be right? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the Torah says that, the temple in Jerusalem, but something new is happening here. And this ought to just, like, make us pause for a second because Jesus is changing the thinking that was held by most religious leaders and was even a proof text. They could prove it in their sacred text. You're supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And he says, yeah, I'm doing something new. What's interesting to me is that in a culture where women are not allowed to study underneath the rabbi, He invites her to speak, to engage, to debate, to have opinions, to think about God herself and the place in which she lived and moved. What he's doing here, ladies, is he's giving her agency when others didn't. Jesus is really good news for women. He starts saying things that she'd never heard before and at some point, I think her head just started to explode, and she said, okay, wait a minute, wait, I know. When the Messiah comes, he'll explain all of this. And then Jesus does something even wilder right here. He says to her, I am. By the way, he has not revealed himself as the great I am to his male followers yet, but to this woman, for the first time, he identifies himself, and it's to this woman, a half-breed, thrown-away, shamed woman. I am. And immediately, that throws us back to the Exodus story, right? When God, when the Israelites were oppressed and and God comes and sets them free, right? This is where he reveals to Moses that he's the great I am, that he's going to free his people. He's going to take them to a better place, the Old Testament gospel. And Jesus says, I am. He says that to her. I love it. Jesus is good news for us women. But before we leave it there, there's something even more here. I got to go back to when she first questioned Jesus, right? In verse 11 and 12, she says, why are you asking me for water? You're, you're a Jew. And besides, she says in verse 12, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? Do you hear her question? Do you think you're better than our father Jacob? Whose well are they at? Well, verse 5 tells us it's Jacob's well. Why does John mention that it's Jacob's well? Because John's audience would have automatically known the history behind this well, and there's lots of it. Remember in Genesis 12, this is where God called Abraham to leave his country and head on out to God knows where, and he does? Well, it's here. He pitches his tent and offers a sacrifice in response to God's promises of a blessing, a kid in the land. This is also where Joseph was sold into slavery, where he's brought home 400 years later to be buried. And I was in Israel. I saw where they think his tomb is still, it's still there. So we've got a promise, right? A promise of hope. And then we've got a story of slavery, And then we've got the story in Genesis 34. It's the story 
where Jacob's daughter Dinah is raped. And if you scroll down in chapter 34 to verse 5, we learn that Jacob didn't do a damn thing about it. His daughter was raped, and he did nothing. And you can bet her story's been told and retold and told again throughout the centuries at Jacob's well. And here's this woman. And she's resigned herself to the fact that this is good as it gets for women, particularly women like her. But here's the deal. This is not what God intended for us. Not for her, not for you, not for me, not for any single woman. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and domestic violence is on the rise. And I think about my daughter, who works every day as a rape advocate. And I imagine the sufferings and pain that she's exposed to, the stories she's having to listen to due to the violence against women. And over the past several years, there have been countless stories of women coming forth in the Me Too and then the Church Too movement. You've heard those stories. I have too. And as a pastor, I have sat across the table from women who have been abused. Like the woman who told me that her husband beat her and locked her in her bedroom away from her two toddler children. And when she went to her pastor for help, he said to her, if you would only submit better, then he could rise up to his level of leadership that God designed in him. And I'm, I'm, I'm just done with that. I'm throwing down the gauntlet. That's not going to do anymore. Why? Because my Jesus just said, I am. I am indeed better than your father, Jacob. And I am hanging onto that hope. In fact, I am fighting for it. And as I do, I wait for the day, expectantly waiting for the day for a future that is better than the present. And along that way of waiting, and it's been a long waiting, I hold on to glimpses of hope. Like my daughter, a force to be reckoned with, let me tell you showing up and standing beside women who've been raped. That's what Jesus does in the here and now. Jesus says, I am better. I am way better. I'm holding on to that. In our next series, we're going to be talking about the Shema, loving God and loving others, specifically How do you love people who are prickly? Until then. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.